Listen to the words long written down When the man comes around Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Well, good morning, everyone. There is, as a preacher, a couple of unwritten rules whenever you follow a children's choir. One of those rules is you're definitely second best. (laughs) The other rule is don't you dare get in the way of any parents and their cell phones. (laughs) So... I guess I should probably explain before I get into the message why uh, I'm dressed this way. This is actually one of the shirts. I'm just thrilled I could actually get back into it again um, from when I would travel to Uganda, which I am traveling there again, Lord willing, in July and August to uh, represent our church to teach at a seminary. Yes, thank you. Praise the Lord. Uh, It's been eight years since I had the last opportunity to do this. Uh, So if you guys remember... Last Sunday, we had a visit in both services from Mr. Incredible. I thought that was really great. Mr. Incredible was talking about, of course, VBS and Camp Where to Go, uh, just like Chris mentioned. So I thought I need to kind of get into the same thing, so I decided to dress as the Black Panther. (laughs) (laughs) Wakanda forever! (laughs) I'm just a little bleached, that's all. Okay, so we are starting a new series this Sunday, and we're calling this series, as we go back to the Gospel of John, Heeding the Signs, all right? And we'll be doing this series probably for about the next five Sundays, I believe. So where we will be at this morning, if you want to go there in your Bibles, is John chapter 2, and we'll be taking a look at verses 1 to 11, all right? Now... As you're going there, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, let me just explain a little bit of background why we're focusing again upon this area of John's gospel. First of all, John tells us near the end of his gospel why he wrote it. And it's in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he wrote, now Jesus did many other signs, that's kind of a key word here, Signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe, I actually underlined that word in my notes, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, in our Bibles, where it's translated believe or believing, There's a Greek word there that John uses almost a hundred times. That's a lot of times to use a particular word in a book that's only 21 chapters long. The Greek word, the noun is pistis, the verb is pistuo, and it means to have faith or belief or basically the same thing. Faith or belief or to have faith or to believe. Now, 
It's not always translated that way in our Bible. Sometimes it's translated that people put their faith in Jesus or people had faith or that we need to have faith, but it's always the same word. But the deal is this. In order for us to believe or to have faith in Jesus, evidence can be really helpful. So John very carefully in this gospel gives seven of Jesus's miracles. We call them the sign miracles, all right? Here's a list of them. First of all, the one that we're gonna look at in just a moment is where he changes the water into wine, all right? That's in John chapter two, verses one to 11. Later, at the same location, the city of Canaan, he heals a royal official's son when he's not even there. Jesus heals him from a distance. Later, he heals a man who has been paralyzed for almost 40 years. Later, he feeds 5,000 plus people. Then, the Lord heals a man who was born blind. After that, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. And then the greatest of the sign miracles is Jesus's resurrection and glorification after he had died on the cross. But it's one thing to read all this and to hear about it. The big issue, though, is this. And I'm going to actually give this to you in four questions, all right? First question, how will we respond to Jesus? It's one thing to know about Jesus, but how do we respond to that knowledge? Will we take to heart who he is and what he has done? Will we obey him? And the last question, will we heed the signs. Because again, we have all this evidence. Our choice is, are we going to believe? Or another way to put it, are we going to continue to believe? To believe means to come to salvation in Jesus, to trust him. But another way to look at this is John is telling us not just to come to faith in Jesus, but to grow in our belief and in our faith in Jesus. Okay. Let's talk now specifically about what we're going to see here in John chapter 2. Wedding. That's what we're going to read about, a wedding. Weddings are times, as we all know, usually of great celebration. 39 years ago, plus two days, Linda and I were married on this very platform. All right? I actually posted pictures on our anniversary, which was Friday, of what we looked like on that day. We look a little different. All right. And then last year, just a little over a year, I had the great privilege of being able to marry our daughter Kathleen and her husband Weston. All right. So weddings are times of great celebration, but sometimes unexpected things happen at weddings. I'm sure all she said is, I'm just going to adjust the cake, honey. And we see what happened, all right? The wedding in Canaan that we're going to read, something went really wrong. But Jesus fixed things in a miraculous way. And even more important than that, though, 
We're told that Jesus revealed his glory and that his disciples believed. If we're going to boil this message down to one sentence, here it is, the main idea. Knowledge of Jesus establishes belief in Jesus. In other words, if we're going to come to know and appreciate who Jesus is, we have to have accurate knowledge of him. And that accurate knowledge begins here at his very first miracle. Okay? Quick outline. We first of all see the celebration and the crisis. Jesus' mother was there, and so she intervened, so we have Mary's intervention. Then we have Jesus' miraculous sign, where he changes this water into wine. And then finally, <coughs> excuse me, we have the result, and that's in verse 11. All right? So let's go ahead and read the passage. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. All right. Celebration and crisis. First of all, we're told this miracle happened on the third day. The third day goes back to chapter 1, verse 43. Just kind of ignore the chapter division because it wasn't there when John wrote this gospel. Three days earlier, Jesus had first called a man named Philip to be his disciple, and then Philip went and got a friend of his named Nathaniel to be a follower of Jesus, but Nathaniel was skeptical that anything good, as he put it, could come out of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. When Nathaniel came, Jesus read his heart. Nathaniel ex expressed himself and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus told him, and the rest of the disciples, you believe simply because of what I said? Then he said in verses 50 and 51, you're going to see heaven, all of you, my disciples, are going to see heaven opened and angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. That's Jesus himself. What did he mean? Jesus was referring back to something that happened in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 28, when the patriarch Jacob, the father of Israel, the nation, was on the run, 
because his brother Esau was going to kill him. Jacob stopped for the night at a place called Bethel, house of God, and laid down to sleep. And during that night, God gave him a vision and God spoke to him. And in the vision, Jacob saw angels coming down from heaven, traveling on a ladder or a staircase, going up and down from heaven and earth. The vision meant simply that God's very presence was there. So also, 2,000 years later, Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us, you haven't seen anything. You get excited because I can read your heart, Nathaniel. You're going to see in my ministry God's very presence manifest. Meaning this. Prepare for surprises if you are following Jesus. That's what he's telling them. And there's going to be two surprises in this next chapter. First of all, he's going to do this private miracle where he's going to change this water into wine, basically saving the groom from a huge embarrassment. And then afterwards, he and his disciples are going to travel down to the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is going to go into the temple, his father's house, and he's going to clean house. He's going to throw out all of the things that turn God's house basically into a house of merchandise. And when the Jewish religious leaders challenged him about that, saying, what's your authority to do this? What do you do as a sign to show that you could do this? Jesus said, okay, here's the sign. I will take this house, my body, after it's been put to death, and I will raise it in three days. Prepare for surprises if you're following Jesus. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book that was written in the Chronicles of Narnia series, and by the way, even though it's a children's book, it's okay for us adults to read it, okay? Mr. Beaver is talking to these children that have come into Narnia, and he's trying to tell them about Aslan. Aslan, the talking, all-powerful lion, the emperor of the north, who is going to come and set the kingdom of Narnia free from endless winter. And as he's describing, the children begin to get a little frightened. And one of the children said, because after all, Aslan is a lion, the child asks, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, no, but he's good. Following Jesus, Jesus is not always predictable. Jesus is not always safe, but Jesus is good. Okay? So, what was it like to attend a wedding back then in the Lord's time? Well, if the bride was a virgin, and she probably was, the wedding would have happened on a Wednesday. If this would have been a second marriage, say the bride was a widow, the marriage would take place on a Thursday. It began with a night procession where the bridegroom would go and get the bride from her home and then bring the bride along with the wedding party over to the house, and then the celebration would begin. 
begin. Jesus used this in one of his parables, the parable of the 10 virgins. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. The celebration usually lasted for seven days. And the host of the celebration was the groom, which meant you had better be prepared because you're going to have to host a seven-day party. You better have adequate provisions, okay? Because you're the host. And if you remember where we were reading in the scripture, verse three, the wine ran out. What? Sorry, teacher voice came through. (laughs) The wine ran out. You couldn't have a greater terrible social disgrace at a wedding. The groom would never live this down. And you know what, guys? He could even face a lawsuit by the bride's family for allowing such a terrible social disgrace to happen. The guy's in trouble, okay? And somehow or other, Jesus' mom finds out. And so notice in the next verse, or at the end of verse three, you know, she gives Jesus a look like only a mom could do. By the way, happy Mother's Day. I want to make sure I get that in. <laughs> but she gives Jesus a look like only a mother could do to her eldest son, and she simply says, they have no wine. And then Jesus' response to our ears, he sounds, frankly, rude. But that's because we live in a different culture than Jesus did. He's not rude at all, guys, when he calls his mom woman. That was perfectly socially acceptable then. As a matter of fact, as Jesus was dying on the cross and his mother Mary was there at the foot of the cross along with the disciple John, he again calls her woman as he takes care of her, having John provide a home for her. Later, when he rose from the dead, the first disciple to witness Jesus' resurrection was Mary Magdalene. And Mary, before she recognized him, he called her woman. So he's not rude, but he is very direct. Literally, he's asking her, I'm not directly involved in this. Am I? You see, Mary has to realize something, and she figures it out, I think, in this short conversation with Jesus. Yes, Jesus is her son, but Jesus is also her Lord. And that's a different relationship entirely. And that precedes the fact that he was born through her, took on human nature. He is her savior, he is her Lord. And everything that Jesus does as he starts his ministry here is based upon what his father wants, not necessarily what Mary would want. That's why Jesus says later, I can do nothing on my own, As I hear, I judge, 
And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, Jesus is following the will and direction of his father as he carries out his mission that's ultimately going to lead to the cross. I like how Don Carson expressed this in his book. He said in John chapter 2, verse 3, Mary approaches as his mother and is reproached. Then in chapter 2, verse 5, as we'll read in a second, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. But the point is this, the Lord responds to our request, to our needs, as he wills, not necessarily how we want when it comes to answering our questions. I shared this in last service. I'll share this with you guys as well. With our previous church um, that used to use the same facility, I would get asked sometimes by our senior pastor to speak and to preach at the church, and I always loved doing it. And then he stopped asking me. And I didn't understand why, and I would ask him about it, and then I'd approach other staff members. I'd try to set cassette tapes of my old sermons under the door. <laughs> I kept asking, I'm praying about it. This went on for eight years before I got another chance to be up here. And the problem wasn't our senior pastor. The problem wasn't anybody else in the congregation. The problem, as I finally figured out, was me. My attitude, my spiritual pride, God could not use me up here. That's ultimately why the opportunity stopped. So, again, the Lord responds as he, as he wills, not necessarily how we want when it comes to our requests. Now, Jesus says something else that seems a little strange, and we need to understand it. He tells her, my hour has not yet come. The Lord's hour is a phrase he uses over and over again throughout this gospel. His hour is the time of his suffering. It's when he goes to the cross for our sins. It's when he fulfills the purpose for which the Father sent him. All right? That's why just before he goes to the cross, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying so intensely that his sweat became like great drops of blood, he says several times, Father, take this hour from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will be done. The clock is running. His hour is coming when he will, to use Jesus' own words, give his life as a ransom for many. Mary doesn't necessarily understand all of this, but she's caught enough to realize Jesus is going to do something. She has no idea what it's going to be. So then she turns to the servants and she simply tells them, do whatever he says. Mary's not sure how her son, her Savior and Lord will act, but she knows enough to trust him. 
Trusting Jesus means expecting the unexpected. We're told in Job 42.2, after Job had seen a powerful vision repeatedly of God's greatness, but God did not answer his questions as far as why he had suffered, but he had seen how great and magnificent God was. He says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Later, Isaiah 43, 13, the Lord himself speaks and he says, also, from today on, I am he alone. And none can rescue from my power. I act, and who can reverse it? Do we really want Jesus' will? You see, if we really want Jesus' will, that means, guys, we have no control. It means we have basically taken the reins of our heart and we have turned them over to him. When I used to water ski a long time ago, we had a phrase when we get in the water, get ready to get pulled by the boat, the phrase was simply this, follow the boat. Good advice. All the years that I used to water ski, I never saw anybody, any water skier, pulling the boat. Looks stupid. That's about what it looks like when a disciple of Jesus says, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm not going to listen to you. No, 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 no. No, it doesn't work that way. All right? Do we really want Jesus' will? Because his will His way of doing something, chances are, is going to be very different from what we expect. Mary was smart enough to realize, just do what he says, and we need to do the same thing, okay? So let's take a look at the miracle. I'm going to start reading again at verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had become wine, he did not know from where, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, now the ESV is kind of cleaning this up a little bit. Literally, it says when the people got drunk, okay? Then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. All right. Six big stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons of water in each, If you do the math, Jesus made 110 to 160 gallons of wine. Why so much? It's because abundant wine is a symbol 
of God's restoration and blessing upon his people. They didn't need that much wine. He just overdid it purposely. That's why it says in Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, when God restores his people, when Jesus comes back, here's what will happen. Amos 9, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman should overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine. In other words, the harvest is coming so fast, everything's growing so fast, that the reaper, the plowman, the farmers are like stumbling over each other. They're just overwhelmed by this abundance. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine. They shall make gardens and eat the fruit. Now, the Lord likes to use what he can find to do a miracle. That's why when he fed the 5,000 plus people, he just took a little boy's lunch, okay? And multiplied that enormously. What he has on hand are these purification jars. They're used, again, as a Jewish ritual because we're told in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Mark says there for his readers that the Jews would not only wash their hands, but it was understood, it was tradition, that you washed all of your utensils. You even washed the couches that you would lie upon for the banquet. You washed everything, all right, to symbolize purity before God. Now, a lot of that rules, some of those were based upon the Old Testament. Some of the 613 laws involved ritual cleansing. But the Jews had added on a lot of extra stuff by Jesus' time, a lot of their traditions. Jesus came to fulfill and to complete the Old Testament law. That's why he said, Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. All 613 laws of the Old Testament, in some sense, pointed ahead to Jesus. And then Paul wrote in Romans 10, 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the culmination of the law. Everything in the law pointed to him. He's also the only one in history who perfectly kept the law. And he had to in order to be a perfect sacrifice for our sin. We were under a curse, guys, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. We were under a curse because we could not keep God's commands. But Jesus took the curse that should have fallen on us. He took it upon himself when he died on the cross. And he then clothed us in his perfect righteousness. So when God the Father looks at us. He looks at us through the righteousness of Christ. With Jesus' arrival, this is what the miracle symbolized. 
With Jesus' arrival, a new day in the Father's plan of salvation has arrived. A day that will break free all the restrictions of the old traditions, the rituals. Jesus' miracle is about replacement and abundance. Much like our salvation in Jesus, in Christ. That's why Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new what? The old has passed away. See, the new has come. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Check it out sometime. There Paul writes that we cannot even conceive or even imagine what God has in store for those of us who believe. It all started because of Jesus. And that super abundant life that we now have because he himself said, the son came to give you life and to give it more abundantly. That abundance is symbolized in this miracle. Oh, by the way, one more thing is necessary. If you're going to have a miracle, you got to have verification. So remember the master of the banquet? He was kind of appointed, probably was one of the guests of the banquet who typically would do this kind of job, making sure nobody drank too much, nobody ends up dancing on the tables or something like that. Uh, But he's the one that kind of supervises everything, and he has no idea of the miracle that's just been performed. All he knows is for some weird reason, this groom has kept away the good stuff until now. So he calls the groom in and he explains, you know, this is what you did. I don't understand why, but he has no idea, but he verifies the miracle that took place, even though he's clueless as far as what has happened. And by the way, everybody else in the banquet is probably clueless too, except for Mary and the disciples. So what was the result? Verse 11, this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first sign. The Greek word for sign is semion. Semion was used in Greek before New Testament times to describe the fancy device you would have on a shield of a soldier. You know, we've seen soldiers' shields like from the Middle Ages where they have like a dragon or a cross or something like that. They would have that in the ancient world as well. That was called a simeon. But by the time this gospel was written, that word, as John is using it, as one writer said, a sign is a sermon in action. The sign miracles like this one are pointers to the power of Almighty God in Jesus. And every time he does a miracle like this, people have a choice. Either they're going to believe in Jesus because of the miracle and its significance, or they're going to reject him. All right? The point is, a sign marks a division. 
Either you believe or you don't. The miracle manifested Jesus' glory. It was largely a private miracle. So how could it show the Lord's glory? It showed it because the disciples were watching. Jesus' mission, as we're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, is to reveal the very glory of God. God's glory is his presence. His presence that in the Old Testament was usually hidden because literally, if we saw God's glory, we would be incinerated. That's why God's glory was only revealed in, under very, very prescribed situations in the Old Testament. But when Jesus came along, he revealed God's glory, even though it was partially hidden by the fact that he had a human nature. Nevertheless, it was God walking in the midst of everyone. Emmanuel, God with us. He'll reveal God's glory ultimately by going to the cross. And that sounds really strange, but it's true. Him dying a horrible death leads to Jesus' glorification because he did it for us. That's why he said just before he went to the cross, John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus came ultimately to die for us. And Mary Mary not only witnessed the first of Jesus' sign miracles, what he did in Canaan, but as I already told you, as her son and her Savior was dying on the cross, she was at the foot of the cross. She witnessed her son's miracle and she witnessed his greatest sign. She had been told when Jesus was just a tiny baby by a prophet named Simeon, that this child would cause the rise and fall of many and to be a sign spoken against. And then Simeon told her in Luke 2.35, a sword will pierce your own soul. It was hard. It was incredibly hard. But that's what it took for us to be saved. And how did the disciples respond to this first miracle? John simply says, remember, John was one of these disciples. He saw this. He said, they believed. Did that mean that they understood the Lord and his mission? Not even close. There would be so many times they would try to redirect Jesus into their understanding of what he was supposed to be as their Messiah. And he had to constantly teach them, leading up to his death and even after his death, what his role really was. But nevertheless, they trusted and they put their faith in him. So, as we wrap up, 
the message. I have some final questions for us, and I did my best, but dang it, I'm still letting you guys out just before 12. That's okay. I think Pastor Daniel's speaking next week, and we all know what happens then. (laughs) He's not here, so I can get away with that. Some final questions. Coming back to our start. Will you, will we heed the sign? The sign is about the abundance of what is available in Jesus if we believe in him. And that leads to our next question. If you've never trusted Jesus, are you willing to believe in Jesus? Are you willing to turn your life over to him so that he can give you his abundant life and take away every sin? And then for those of us who do believe in Jesus, are you willing to grow in your belief in Jesus? Christian life, either we're going forward or we're going back. There is no neutral. We're called to believe, but then we're called to grow in that belief. So we're going to have a time for folks to come forward who want to come forward for prayer, either in relation to this message or for some other need. We're going to do that again in just a moment as Rachel does a final song. So if you have something you'd like us to pray for you about, we want to do that. We're here for you. So you come as the Lord leads.